The following episode of the 9pm edict does not contain strong language. However, it does contain intelligent computers, killer robots, and some automatic incompetence. Saturday the 17th of September 2022 for the first special guest episode of the Spring Series. I'm joined by one of the world's leading researchers in artificial intelligence, University of New South Wales Scientia Professor Toby Walsh. He'll explain what all that means. Uh, He's the author of three popular books on AI, including the latest, Machines Behaving Badly, The Morality of AI. He's also the chief scientist of the newly launched UNSW AI Institute. So, in this episode, we ramble on about all of that stuff, things like killer robots, uh, but Toby's actually optimistic. We'll sit there sipping our cocktails while, while the robots are sweating for us, that we do have that future. That said, we hear how AI systems can automatically learn how to be racists. These systems are trained on data, and data by its very nature is historical. And then there's the whole crypto world of Bitcoin and NFTs. I always find the whole crypto world so wonderfully obtuse and so wonderfully absurd. Hello, I'm Stilgerian. This is the 9pm Killer Robot Restaurant Booking with Toby Walsh. Sientia Professor Toby Walsh, thank you for joining me. <laughs> it's a pleasure. Sienta, I should say, is a completely fake, made-up Latin-sounding word that the university sprinkles over various people, which is supposed to add glitter and gluster to it, but doesn't. Well, Not sure what it does. Sort of Sienta, you're knowledge. Knowledge, yeah. You're a professor that knows things. Yes. Apparently so. And you have been working on artificial intelligence, as you told uh, a crowd of people today at the launch, and we'll come back to that in a minute. For more than 40 years, but I want to uh, start in the early days and 50s sci-fi and and all those news reports about giant electronic brains. The hero of our story tonight is the giant electronic brain developed by Remington Rand, Univac. Now, recent experiments show that future use of Univac may give us faster and more accurate weather predictions than were ever possible before. You see... Univac can take the past histories of thousands and thousands of storms, analyze them, compare them with developing conditions, and make predictions, all in a matter of minutes. Calculations that would ordinarily take hundreds of man-hours to complete. Data from guided weather rockets, radar observation stations, weather stations, all of this can be fed into the computer through these magnetic tapes at a rate of 12,000 numbers or letters per second. The memory tanks make immediately available 12,000 additional units of information. And all of this complex weather data is analyzed in the heart of the UNIVAC, the electronic central computer, capable of making over 2,000 mathematical calculations per second. Are we still on a path from that? We're, st- we're still on a path from that. And, and indeed, that, that, those were the sorts of stories that got me as a young boy into what I do today, which was reading uh, authors like Arthur, Arthur C. Clarke and Isaac mm-hmm. Asimov, um, reading about a future that was full of intelligent machines and smart robots, and then dawning on me that that was something that possibly could happen in my lifetime, and I could actually I could sit down and start trying to build those sorts of machines. And I've spent the last forty plus years on that quest, and there's still a there's still a long way to go. Full artificial intelligence, whatever that might be, and that's another, you know, we could talk for days about that question alone. It's a bit like um, civilian nuclear fusion power. It's always been <laughs> 10 to 15 years in the future for the last 60 years. It it has always been somewhat in the future, but you do get the feeling that it is starting to be a little bit nearer. In fact, the title of my last book, 2062, was the estimate i asked survey 300 colleagues other people around the world working in the field when they thought machines might match humans in all of their capabilities and the median answer they said was 2062 that's and- interesting and i i note uh, 3 minutes into the recording before the first book plug this is <laughs> 
Uh, which I think is an interesting date. I mean, obviously there was huge variability in their answers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With this huge answer, we we don't know what we miss, so it's hard to know how long it's going to take to build it. But having said that, none of them were really saying that it was going to take centuries or thousands of years. Not that sort of scale of problem. Equally, none of them were saying it was going to take five or ten years. All of them were saying it was going to take, you know, forty or fifty. If we're lucky, maybe if we're unlucky, a hundred years. It's something that's really conceivable in the lifetime of our children and if you and i are lucky maybe even in our lifetimes maybe i i mean i mean we mentioned some science fiction there there's others around where it's it's posited as happening two or three hundred years in the future interesting enough i i think you know we look at the advances we can build narrow focused intelligence today right so you pick mm. a pick a, a, a specific task whether that be playing Go, the ancient Chinese game of Go, reading uh, x-rays for tuberculosis, Mm -hmm. translating tweets from Mandarin into English. We can build machines already today that do those tasks at superhuman level. Uh, I'm going to say maybe not so much the translation thing. That's always glorious fun, but... For, tweets, but tweets, you know, obviously not translating legal documents or... Or, or scientific, well, maybe scientific papers are easier. Yes. I, I, as an aside, did both computing science and linguistics for a bit at university. Yeah, we, it? we're not going to have machine-translated <laughs> novels. They're not going to... That's still a, there's still a real art form into translating yes. well. But, you know, you can, you can buy a device now that will sit in your ear and do simultaneous translation and do a pretty good job of translating. You can, you can download an app on your smartphone that will translate the restaurant menu uh, and do a pretty good job of that. Those, those are things that even 10 years ago were almost inconceivable, and yet mm. they're mundane. And what's even more remarkable, I mean, the app you can download that can translate... Um, pictures on your phone so it has to do two two interesting ai tasks first of all, it has to has to identify the text so it has to be able to read you know optical character recognition it has to be able to read the text then it has to do the translation and then it does you know a third task which is then superimpose the translated text onto the image again um it's sufficiently smart it can do that on board it can do that on the device it's not mm. it's not some super duper thing that's running in the cloud it's actually small enough that it can actually run in the memory of your phone in real time. But natural language processing was one of the initial uses for AI, wasn't it, during it the was, Cold it was, War? It was one of the driving applications. The uh, US military of, of defense was spending, Department of Defense was spending lots of money, in part because they wanted to be able to translate documents of Russian mm. into English quickly enough. And back then they failed. Um, it was it was it was considered to be a, a, a real failure. That despite all the money they poured into it in the sixties, seventies, and eighties, that they really didn't make success. And you know what what changed? Um, what's interesting is largely it was data, largely it was compute. Backpropagation was invented back then, but we hadn't the the data sets and we didn't have the compute to run it at the scale that we do now, which seems to have made much much of a difference. Backpropagation. I again was going to wait a bit before mentioning that and neural networks. Well, I mean, neural nets are loosely, and I use the word loosely, right. very advisedly, modelled on the neuro- neurons in our brain. They are. They have a bunch of inputs, and they fire when the some of the inputs exceed a threshold. And the name of the game is to adjust the weights uh, on the inputs and the output to try and get them to fire at the right moment. And there's a very simple algorithm called backpropagation, which is slowly tweaking those weights based upon showing it lots of examples and saying, well, you should be, you should be firing zero or firing one in this situation um, and adjusting the weights to try and do that. And um, remarkably, um, it's a very crude model of how the mm. human neuron works, but seems to work very well when done at scale or done with lots of data. The trick, of course, is selecting the data and having a data set. And I'm not sure whether the story I'm about to tell, and it's one I was told a long time ago, and it's possibly apocryphal, but it's the US Army or US Air Force and photo reconnaissance images 
and tell us whether there are hiding in the forest any armoured vehicles in this yes. picture or not. And it turned out that many of those with armoured vehicles were taken on cloudy days and many of those without were taken on sunny days. So it turned out they trained a neural network to tell sunny days from cloudy days. Yeah, you, there, there, are, there are lots of apocryphal stories. There must be some truth somewhere amongst these stories, uh, whether it's cloudy or non-cloudy, with snow or without snow. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, Morning or afternoon, moon, shadows morning, are in the other direction. Yes, and, and funny enough, it came back to bite us very recently. So during the pandemic, there were quite a lot of um, efforts to train um, neural networks again to to recognize people with covid from the distinctive signs signs on the x-rays um, and it turned out that um, the data set used to train either had um, all people sitting down who were well and people lying down if they were sick or oh, young people uh, who weren't sick and old people who were sick and which depending on which story you you, you read um, it was not recognizing covid it was actually recognizing either um, sitting down or not sitting down or um, young people from old people this gets us then to more uh, serious kinds of bias in the data set and uh, race has obviously been a big one there uh, a, a classic again which stories are true or not, we don't know. But it gets into it almost... Uh, there is one story that we know is completely true, and that was Compass, and that was race, and that was that was a system that's in use, still in use today in 20 of the 52 states in the United States, that's used by judges to help them make predictions on sentencing. Uh-huh. And The Intercept um, have done a, a, a very good takedown, a very break, good breakdown of that system, and it is irretrievably be racist mm. and there's been a, a similar system in um, New South Wales I, again not related to sentencing but but areas which are likely to uh, have crime and of course there are areas which have more uh, non-white people or poorer people or whatever it might be um, I'll put a reference to that in the housekeeping section of the podcast uh, at the midway mark dear listener you know about that uh, but it, it, it is a serious problem um, it is these systems are trained on data and data by its very nature is historical and it reflects the, the system in which that data was captured and you know there are plentiful settings pl- plentiful institutions where where they were racist and they are racist today and if we're not careful we're going to bake in that racism moving forwards and what's worse than today is that we're handing over these decisions to machines machines are in many cases somewhat like black boxes and they're not as accountable as humans you can't ask them for an explanation you can't hold them accountable the way that we could hold humans accountable there is however a push surely and i think europe is european countries are leading this to uh explainability that it must be possible to explain how the computer reaches the decision and there has to be a human name attached somewhere to it who is responsible for this decision and i find that interesting we're going to circle around this issue quite a lot i think is who's who's actually making the decision if you create a system is it the creator of the system who's effectively the decision maker yes yeah well i mean there's some value to trying to make systems more transparent and more explainable but i think there's a there's a really a limit i mean there are, we there are some systems we, we may never be able to explain i mean if we look at our own selves Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that we're ever going to be able to explain human vision, um, but we're going to have vision. We've got computer vision. We're increasingly building into our cars that recognize things. And so if we can't explain human vision, how can we necessarily expect to be able to explain computer vision? And we were talking about the legal system. It just occurred to me when a magistrate looks down at someone who's, I, I, I don't know, found a, a, uh, in possession of drugs and they decide, look, should this person just get a warning and no conviction recorded because we think that was, you know, a, a something that they're going to work their way out of or no, whatever. They're, they're basing that on what's happening invisibly inside their own head. They are, but that's, that's not totally problematic. I mean, if you think about it, every, every day we put our lives in the hands of our doctors um, and... Mm-hmm. Uh, we do that with confidence. We do that with confidence because we know they live in an, an institution where there are safeguards in place. I don't, I don't need my doctor to have to explain every one of her decisions to me. 
I trust that she lives with an institution in which if she's killed too many of her patients, she will have been struck off. <laughs> if she prescribes drugs that are, that are unsafe, they won't be available. Um, and so I could just I could just sit back and I, I don't have to be, and nor does any patient have to be a medical mm. expert. That's not an expectation, but we know we put institutions in place, we put systems in place that we can we can trust our lives on them without explanation, without transparency. And that's the, that's the place we've got to get to with computer systems. We've got to build those institutions around the systems so that we know that they've been, they've been carefully examined and tested um, and those that break have been, have been thrown out and, and we, people have gone back to the drawing board and built systems that, that all of us can trust without actually having, like we trust our doctors. And yet in Australia we have that remarkable that remarkable case of robo debt, which wasn't even an AI system. That was a, 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 a it was really just a bit of arithmetic to work out whether someone owed money or not. Felicity de Somerville went to pay for her baby's medication when she realised eleven and a half thousand dollars had been snatched from her account. I thought my world had fallen apart. I um. That was six months' worth of wages. The Frankston nurse was part of a class action that took down the federal government's unlawful robo-debt scheme. Over four years, the scheme issued $1.7 billion in debt notices to more than 430,000 Australians, many of whom didn't owe a cent. One of the real tragedies of that system was that those debt notices were sent without any human oversight. Mm. They were automatically printed and sent out. Um, and... Um, there was, you know, the system was given full autonomy to, to send out notices that were going to cause a huge amount of distress. Probably people um, committed suicide as a, as a, as a consequence, the, the, you know, very serious um, harms that were committed without any human oversight. And so mm. I think we, we, were, we need to be more careful in, in these sorts of high stake decisions if we remove humans completely from the loop. And that's why, you know, I'd be very passionate about you know, removing humans from the loop on the battlefield. Um, and you know there are various other places in, in the judiciary, in our welfare system where we want to, where we should remove humans, completely with great great care because machines are not moral beings; they can't be held accountable. Only humans can be held accountable. The robo debt thing, in particular, there is now um, going to be an inquiry into how all that happened. Yes, an inquiry, and obviously it will lead back to Scott Morrison, who was in charge. <laughs> At every step of the of way. every step of the way, right. You know, another oh. thing to add to his catalogue of mistakes and disasters. We, we are moving on. Now, I... I, I Still want to talk about some other things in the past. There was this idea, uh, and it was sort of that artificial intelligence would come from an enormous logic tree. That if you, <laughs> if you gave a computer all of the the little formal logic propositions, apples are red except when they're green, and these are the conditions under which they're not green, uh, and so on. And if you just poured enough of that in a system, and I just remembered they're called expert systems, aren't they? Yes. That's the name of the time. Um, that it would suddenly be able to answer questions by looking at what you asked and it would go through all of this vast pool of knowledge and spit out the answer somehow. Yes, that proved to be somewhat problematic. I mean, there was a very big project called Psych. Doug Leonard um, in the United States um, spent years and years after the end of the expert system moves trying to write down all these rules. And the, the problem is that there's, you know, an infinite number of rules you need to write down. Mm. And if you think about it, that's not how you and I got to be intelligent. You and I got to be intelligent because we learnt most of the things that, most intelligent things that we do, reading, writing, arithmetic, you know, the three R's, but, uh, are things that we learn to do. And they're not things that we were born able to do. And, and, and we so, learn by experience too, that we, we our, our neural networks in our head, in this rough analogy, as you said, uh, see similarities between what's happening right now and other things that we've experienced in the past and all the different bits of our brain come up with ideas about what might be the appropriate thing to do, move your hand left to avoid being stung by the bee or whatever it is. And this cacophony of 
stuff somehow gets filtered down to a final decision. Isn't that, I mean, that's kind of how it works, isn't it? It is. And that's what kind of what we're doing in machine learning. In particular, there's a branch of machine learning called reinforcement learning, where you, if the machine does the right thing, <laughs> it gets a positive reinforcement. And if it does the wrong thing, it gets a negative reinforcement. There's a branch of child education called that too, if I remember correctly, the but, stick or the carrot. But that's that's how we wrote AlphaGo, the program that, that learned to play Go. By It played lots of games of Go, and when it won a game of Go, it reinforced those positive moves it made. Let's do more of those winning moves. And when it lost, it um, negatively reinforced the, 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 the losing moves it made. And in fact, you know, the the trick is the nice thing with games like that is that you could actually just have two versions of the program playing playing each other one side will win you reinforce the positive moves that that side made one side loses and you you negatively reinforce the the losing moves that that other side made and you can therefore run evolution by natural selection at incredible speeds you can do it at superhuman speed so i mean that's the dirty secret you know alpha go got to be better than any human at go got to be what the chinese call now a go god because it plays sublime moves that haven't been seen in the thousands of years that we've been playing in the game of go because it played lots of games ago it played millions of games ago if you played go from the moment you woke up in the morning to the moment you fell asleep, you did that for the whole of your life, you would not have played that many games of Go. It would have taken uh, hundreds of people to play Go, the whole of all of their lives, to play the millions of games of Go that, that AlphaGo played. And so it was actually quite a slow learner, but it <laughs> saw more Go than you could see in a hundred lifetimes and therefore became better at the game than, than any human possibly could be. How smart does something have to be before we can call it artificial intelligence as opposed to just a tricky bit of maths? I mean, on the scale of I don't know, Netflix recommendations, which really is quite straightforward. Uh, I've seen that recently on another streaming platform. We've, we're choosing to watch uh, as a group online a James Bond film. It's the 60th birthday of the very first James Bond film, Dr. No, 1962. So we're watching one every Tuesday night. Bond on Tuesday. Look for us on Twitter. <laughs> uh, we're well over halfway through it now, though. But within just a few weeks, um, Prime Video worked out oh you're watching james bond films earlier <laughs> here are the next five that's not that's not really intelligence is it no it isn't and and but, i mean interesting enough there's there's a lot of what we do it doesn't require a huge amount of intelligence yeah. There's, there's a lot of you can just see that looking around the world <laughs> there's a, a, a lot of interactions that we do that are heavily scripted and, and that's mm. why you know uh, a demo like google's duplex which was able to to ring up and book a restaurant table or book a haircut which seemed on the surface to be really impressive that it would have a free-form conversation you would ring it up it would um and ah like a human you'd say oh i'm afraid we don't have any tables at six o'clock and said well how about 7 30 you say uh could we have a table at eight uh then you would then it might say you know how many people and you'd say um two people do you have any special requests yes we've got one vegetarian mm. And you discover, actually, when you realise it, you know, if you hear lots of those conversations, they're actually very heavily scripted. There's a there's a real ritual that you go through. Sometimes, maybe in slightly different orders, you do the things. You don't have to say the vegetarian bit before the number of people, maybe, or whatever. Um, you might ask if they're only vegetarian, if there was a vegetarian menu or not. Uh, or they could cater for someone with, with uh, a nut allergy. Um, but nevertheless, there's a pretty serious script that you go through. You've got to tick the various boxes um, to be able to make the booking. And the system was able to do that. Make a restaurant reservation. Okay, I found some choices. Which place do you want? Cafe Istanbul. Sounds good. I'll call to make a reservation at Cafe Istanbul. For how many? Two people. Okay, for two people. For when? Friday. Okay, at what time? 7 p.m. Sounds good for 7 p.m. on Friday. Just in case that's not available, can I try between 7 p.m. and 8 p.m.? Yes. Got it, for 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. I have a phone number here ending in 8321. Can I use that to book the reservation? Yes. Okay, 
I'll book it under Kyle, with the phone number ending in 8321. Should I try to book? Yes. All right. I'll try calling them now and update you within the next 15 minutes. You can always ask me about your reservations to check the status. Hello, Cafe Prague? Hi, I'm going to make a reservation for a client that gone from Google, so the call may be recorded. Can I book a table for tomorrow, please? Yes, at what time would you like to reserve? At 7 p.m. Okay, perfect. How many people? It's for two people. Okay, two people tomorrow at 7 p.m. What's your name? The first name is Anna. Anna, okay, thank you. Okay. I'll see you tomorrow, thank you. But that was just with some fairly straightforward rules, wasn't it? It was just have have I done this bit of the script yet? You know, if if you haven't been if it if you've done all of the other things and set a time and whatever, but you haven't been asked about the nut allergy, then you offer that information. Oh, by the way, one of our people has a nut allergy. Uh, actually, I believe it was actually just it was it was trained on lots of examples of, ah. of conversations. It wasn't a, a raw based system in any way. That's Again, it was a machine learning system where they they'd recorded lots of lots of examples of conversations like this. And it's interesting it because that's that how actually a small vocabulary. That's how tourists tourist language. If you're learning a foreign language, you can learn for academic purposes or for literary purposes, or you can learn survival version of that yeah. language, which again is all the scripted thing. Good morning. How are you? Uh, when will breakfast be served? You know, it's it's the phrase book. Yes, the the foreign language phrase book yes, version it's... of the language. So, given all that, can something like a, a, a disembodied computer that you're interacting with somehow, or a robot that just popped into existence from the factory, be truly intelligent in that ah. way? If, if it hasn't physically experience yes. the world now i i i suspect that you realize that this is a well-worn path of questions that everyone has it about. is but it's, it's 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 a fantastic question and it's, it's fantastic because we used to worry about it when i started out in the field in the 80s we used to worry about this a lot people used to talk about this you know could you have disembodied intelligence or mm. was did intelligence Brain have in to a box. Be, it be embodied um, in a in a in a in a body or in a robot body maybe, um, and what it's, what's interesting is that much of that debate has has quietened down and almost disappeared, ever since we invented the internet, and we discovered there was this <laughs> rich virtual world, and the internet is arguably you know as rich if not richer than well, the, it's full the, of people, isn't it? It's full of people, and it's as rich these days as 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 the physical real world. And I th think people have realised actually, well, if you can build some intelligence that works on the internet, then that <laughs> would be a great improvement. <laughs> well, it would be a great improvement. Yeah, first of all, it would be a great improvement. But secondly, that's a rich enough environment that you could build um, intelligence without necessarily having to worry about also building the body that goes along with it so it could be experienced all of the richness of the world there's a rich virtual world to be explored and experienced it's interesting that yes the the 70s the late 60s or 1970s were where a lot of that thought was happening the film 2001 a space odyssey released in 1968 from memory uh second half of the 1960s anyway the computer hal you could say now some say Hal's a disembodied computer. I say, no, 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 no. Hal's body was the spaceship. Yeah. Hal was the spaceship's brain. Because Hal could have asked, after all, could open the bay pod doors. <laughs> he <laughs> had connected. chosen to do so. <laughs> he had chosen to do so. Yes. And there was lots of things he couldn't let you do. <laughs> <laughs> and then in 1972, I did check this up. I don't normally roll this off the top of my head. I did look up the other day. David Gerald, a science fiction writer, who was in fact the, the writer who put Tribbles into Star Trek and wrote that sort of comedic episode. In 1972, he wrote a book, called When Harley Was One, Harley, H-A-R-L-I-E in all capital letters, a disembodied uh, computer. You can tell he was influenced by 2001 because uh, Harley interacts with uh, Mr. Orbison, who is a psychologist, and, and they're looking at the intelligence. But then one day, uh, Harley realises and works out that he can be turned off, and he doesn't, <laughs> he doesn't want to be turned off. 
As no computer does in science fiction, at least. Yes. Um, but, I, mean, I won't fu- spoil it. it. It's actually really good exploration but, but, of the issue. I mean, it's quite funny to think about Hal, right? You think about all the things that we could see Hal could do in a compu- in the movie, mm. or, or you could read in Arthur C. Clarke's original book. They're all things that you've got in your home today. Yes. You've got a comp- you, can, you, can, you can get an app on your phone that will play chess, like Hal was playing chess. You can... You can um, buy an Alexa that you can tell to open mm-hmm. the Maypod doors or mm-hmm. turn the lights off. Um, all of those things that Hal was doing are things that you can have in your home today. Yes, even down to um, controlling your spaceship, not a spaceship, but maybe a drone and send the camera out and do things. It's, uh, you know, certainly you will, you'll have to sort of be in the loop for that, but we're, we're at the point where we can just punch yeah. in where we want the, the drone to fly. Uh, and I'm sure that some of the manufacturers, I will again check for the housekeeping bit, that, that I'm sure someone's integrated that with Siri in some way, if not commercially, at least experimentally. Yes. It's, it's, it's obviously, you can glue those things together and, and get that functionality today. Okay, before I go anywhere else, of course someone has got Siri controlling a drone. They did it 10 years ago. Uh, A very quick search uh, revealed that uh, Graham Robinson back in 2012 uh, connected uh, a Parrot AR drone helicopter, or quadricopter rather, uh, with Siri via a thing, a software and to uh, show you how long ago that was, he used an iPhone 4S. The iPhone 14 came out this week. Okay, so I'm an idiot. I, I haven't played around with drones, so I did not know where the technology was up to. I can't, I can't be across everything, okay? And that was just a really quick search. I am sure that if you go down the rabbit hole properly, you will find heaps and heaps of fun things being done with drones and Siri and Google Assistant and stuff. So there's that. Also, Google Duplex we talked about. Uh, those, uh, those audio grabs we played of it working are from 2018. They're from four years ago. And uh, to to flesh out the question we had about is this scripted, uh, is it self-learned, uh, according to an article I've linked to, and uh, I, I linked to so many things on the podcast webpage, uh, dear listener, if, you, if you're new to the podcast, this can be a learning experience for you. And also, thank you for joining us. Uh, but yes, go to the podcast webpage tonight, the, the web page, the 9pmedic.com slash you'll find it and you'll discover that Google Duplex is what's called supervised training so according to the article I linked to experienced operators uh, perform the coaching it's just like an instructor watching a student's work or a, a presumably a, a training in a call center working and sharing advice on how they do it. So these operators can alter the system behaviours in real time uh, and that means they can just continue doing that until the system reaches the desired level of quality in whichever domain it is, whether it's booking a restaurant thing or a dentist appointment or whatever, at which point they, they let that computer chap loose on the world. Curious that Siri itself, or sorry, that was Google Assistant, not Siri. Google Assistant, like Siri, is by default a female voice, but it was a male voice who phoned the restaurant. Interesting. I'm also curious as to why, given all that rigmarole talking to Google Assistant to set up the call, why not just make the damn call? (laughs) Like, what... What are you saving here? Maybe I, I suppose uh, the assistant can learn. Well, it knows your phone number, it knows your address, email address, uh, preferences, things like that. So I suppose you don't have to go through them. But really, really, there are people starving in the world, and we're working out how to how to save all this wasted time making a restaurant booking. And going back to very early in the episode, uh, I talked about that 
glitch in neural networks where uh, uh, an American defence neural network was trained not to detect tanks hiding in forests but to detect whether it was a sunny or a cloudy day. Well, there is a, a freelance American writer and researcher and and software developer and AI person uh, by the name of Gwen Brunwyn. He's written a big blog post about it because he's actually researched it and it says, yeah, nah. There's so many versions uh, dating back to uh, 1992, along with two anecdotes from the 1960s. And he says, quote, their contradictions and details indicate a classic urban legend with a probable origin in a speculative question in the 1960s uh, by Edward Fredkin at an AI conference uh, about some early AI research that was happening and which was then classified and, well, and never followed up on, or rather classified and never heard about ever again. It's a great urban legend, though, and uh, Gwen Branwen agrees that this is is a perfectly, perfectly good uh, cautionary tale, uh, 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 a sort of a little... A little fairy tale, which uh, which um, improves our life. Just so story. That's the phrase I'm thinking of. I think I even used that story last week. I don't know. Anyway, here's the pleading bit. <laughs> Give me money. Um, this podcast is uh, made possible by you, the generous listener. Thank you so much. And this time I really want to thank all the people who contributed to the 9pm Spring Series crowdfunding campaign. As I said, this is the first of the special guest episodes, which that made possible. So many people supported the campaign. Were you one of them? The following people were one of them. Uh, is that the grammar grammatically correct? I don't know. Uh, I, there's so many of you. I'll, I'll uh, thank you in chunks. And today I'll start at the higher end of the scale. People who bought a conversation topic. Two of you. Thank you to Gay Rainbow Anarchist. Again, thank you so much for your support and indeed your constant um tweeting about the podcast on Twitter. That's lovely. Also, Richard Stevens, thank you very much, Richard. Please remember you two to, to suggest your conversation topics, either for a specific episode or just send in a thing. Just tell me something you would like us to talk about and I'll see if I can arrange a, a suitable guest uh, to talk about that. Uh, and buying three trigger words... Uh, Peter Sanderlands, uh, who, thank you, Peter, you've been supporting the podcast for a while, and when I ran into you in in the physical world, in Meat Space the other day, it finally occurred to me that, oh, oh that Peter Sanderlands. And I've known him for years. There we go. Thank you, Peter. Another Peter, Peter Viertel. Thank you so much. Philip Merrick, who's become a bit of a regular, and Sheepy who always puts in excellent trigger words. Thank you, Sheepy. And one other person who chooses to remain anonymous. And and I want to thank especially the five people who choose to have no reward at all, which means not even saying your name. Some of you were the most generous supporters of all and continue to be the most generous, so thank you so much. If you would like to uh, join those people, please go to the 9pmedict.com slash tip. That's the 9pmedict.com slash tip. Please do the needful. Uh, it helps me buy food and stuff. Well, and gin, that sort of thing. Thank you. Toby, it is time. To take some trigger words. Oh, trigger words. I think, yes. Now, <laughs> I'm a little nervous. I have no idea. Well, um, what? <laughs> what are on these? Uh, well, as regular listeners to the pod will know, uh, this is not the glass jar of transparency because I'm down in Sydney rather than in the mountains. I didn't want to bring a glass jar with me. But this is the, uh, the traditional chemist warehouse plastic bag of semi-translucency but in here are uh, words on little scraps of paper uh, supporters of this podcast have bought them um you can draw one out okay. um toby i will i'll unfold and read it so that i'll get the names right i know who these people are thank you very much 
uh, on this bit of paper. Listen, I can assure you that was chosen completely random. Yes. Yes, they're all folded up. We can't read it. I can't even unfold them properly. Sometimes. And the winner is, drumroll. Uh, this is from Garth Kidd, again. 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 Well, my first... My I, I quest- thought for a second again was the trigger word. No, 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 no. <laughs> well, again is the trigger again, word. Again is the trigger word. Again. Again means repetition. What do we keep... See- Here we go. What do we see in the story of AI, either historically or currently, that we just keep seeing again and again and again and, and, and is therefore bad? Oh, we've hinted at some of it. Well, you, you're always seeing... Uh, you know, robots with a red glint in their eye with oh, yes. with the idea that they want to take over the planet. Um, malevolence. And actually, I think what we should be worried about is incompetence, not malevolence. <laughs> that we will hand responsibility to machines that will um, destroy us through their incompetence, not through any evil intent, but by, by just being stupid. Friend of the podcast, Justin Warren, says that any sufficiently advanced incompetence is indistinguishable from malevolence. <laughs> Paraphrasing Arthur C. Clarke. Yes, and you know we we will at some point, um, you know, hand too many decisions, whether it be for the nuclear reactor or for for um, you know social media in our next election, and we'll discover that we've woken up in a very bad place, and not because the machines had any malevolent intent to take over and rule the planet, but just because. Um, our own stupidity we gave too much responsibility to machines that didn't have the capability to take on those decisions the red eyes thing even the soccer playing robots which we saw earlier today have red <laughs> glowing eyes <laughs> yeah is, is, is this the must-have i mean i have seen them with with blue of course yeah, um, yeah you but can then get... red when then the other side uh, this is i mean it's a bit black hat white hat for western movies yeah um, well, I mean, of course, you know, there's a physics reason, which is because diodes were originally red and it took a while to invent the, the blue diode. Indeed, um, the person who invented the blue diode, I believe, won the Nobel Prize in physics for it. Yes. Um, so it was, it was considered to be quite a, quite a, uh, quite a, a discovery to discover how you could turn an LED blue rather than red. Another question on again, you're getting your value for money here, Garth Kidd. I have noticed that certainly in software development more broadly, that each generation of geeks and developers seem to want to reinvent the wheel and all of the old folks go, ah, yes, we see what you're doing here. We did all that. You know, we have tools for doing that or, you know, have ways of doing that. You're working mostly in an academic environment which does build upon the past. There is a tradition of building on the past. Are we always remembering our lessons from the past no we're not and i mean it's, it is quite worrying and i, I look unfortunately you know it's it's it's, it's it, you often <laughs> one tries not to say you know we had it tough and back in the day and be too nostalgic <laughs> oh, yeah. about things but there's a real uh, there is an amazing disconnect when you talk to young academics today which is if it was in if it was something written down and in, invented before the 90s there's very little understanding of that. They will say to you, oh, well, you know, that's not in the library because it's not on the online library. Yeah. And I say to them, well, you know, there's that big building in the centre of campus. It doesn't have many windows on it. It's called the library. And I'm pretty sure there's a dusty shelf with a volume on it where you will find you know, the original journal article written in the 70s or the 60s or even before that, where people already looked at this once before and we had to... We had to rediscover it, and because it's not online, in a um, you know, all the journals started to be um, put online in the nineties, and people don't know it. It happened. There's a weird analog gap with things that are before the Mickey Mouse date and out of copyright are being scanned and digitized. Yeah, and then anything after about the mid to late nineties was created digitally, so it is online. And there's this gap. Yes, as though nothing happened in that time. <laughs> Look, let's 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 do another one, let's and, and then one. I want to ask you a bit more about killer robots. Right, Toby has drawn another one at okay. random. Thank you. All. And the winner this time is is, is right. I shouldn't fold them up so tightly. I have this problem every time. So again, learning from experience. It's not something we do. This is from Gavin Costello. 
And he he has said Dom, D-O-M. I think it might be a reference to our state premier. Uh, Dom Perito. Yes. Uh-huh. It's Dominello as well, the Minister for Customer Service. I mean, we, a state... Here we go. Here's, here's a riff because here's, here's a preformed thing in my mind. Identity online, uh-huh. privacy, proving who you are. I don't know where I'm going with that, but here's some... Here's a cluster of words which might trigger well, something. Certainly, certainly many people in my circle are somewhat actually sad that Victor is retiring. Yes. But he has actually been a... I should just say, yes, Victor Dominello, uh, New South Wales government. Uh, Minister for Customer Service and Digital Delivery and some combination of words like that. Yes. Um, uh, who has been for... I mean, government tends to be very conservative. Hmm. Um, Particularly when it's a conservative government. Especially when it's a conservative government. Um and uh, interestingly enough, the the place where AI has actually, in many respects, the greatest opportunity is in government, in delivery of service, in delivery of, you know, it's a it's a it's a very big business. It has a huge amount of data, and lots of AI, of course, is driven by data, and it is trusted, mostly for reasonable reason for on reasonable grounds with that data. Right, it knows everything about us from you know when we were born. All our education, all our health, it has, mm-hmm. you know, and so it has great potential if it's careful to do use that data in very positive ways to deliver better services, more targeted services. Um, and on the whole, uh, government shies away from doing too much. Um, um, and so, it, someone like Victor has actually been a breath of fresh air mm. in the sense that he has actually pushed government to sort of innovate. It's still a long journey. It's only the beginning of a of a long journey, but equally, of course, you've got to be very aware of the risks. I mean, um, Orwell's novels are, are, are full of stories of the risks, right? It's Big Brother is is government. I mean, what, what I mean, what, what the strange thing, of course, is that you know Orwell got a couple of things completely wrong. He thought that government would, you know impose these devices, these listening devices, into our homes that we wouldn't be able to turn off. Well, it turns out. We were actually paid money to private corporations to put these listening devices in our home voluntarily. Uh, we'll pay Amazon or Google or Apple money to put these listening devices mm. in our home. Um, and it's a private corporation, which is in some respects less answerable than the government. At least the government, we have to keep on re-electing and we get to choose, uh, relatively speaking, who they get to be. Um, whereas we don't get to choose who's in charge of Apple or Amazon. Or what they do. Yes, they don't have to answer to everybody, no. just their shareholders. And well, they don't even answer to their shareholders. I mean, that's part of the problem. And in, in another way, it, it therefore brings in criminals into, mix, into the mix. And I've certainly had uh, senior cops make the very sensible point is, well, the thing about criminals is they don't have to operate within the law, but we do. So we're all, they're already one ahead of us. Yes. Uh, now... Yes, dear listener, insert a whole gripe. All cops are bastards. Blah blah blah. All that they play with us. But broadly speaking, there there is sort of a rule of the game there, and and we've seen that uh, with the criminals taking over the hackings, the ransomwares. It's almost getting boring and blasé to, to talk about now. But but that's a big factor of what's going on in the world. Yes, I mean the, I always find the whole crypto world so wonderfully obtuse and so wonderfully absurd that here is uh of money where you you can actually trace every transaction yes and yet it is a cesspit of fraud and crime Mm. despite the fact that you could trace every transaction right you know money old-fashioned money is anonymous Yes. Um, it is the most perfect anonymous form, which is, you know, why if you are going to hold, listen, if you are going to hold someone, you know, hostage, you're going to you're going to demand, you used to at least demand for your, uh, um, for your oh. ransom in, you know, use banknotes because that was the perfect anonymous form. Now, of course, yes. you would de- demand it in crypto. And on the blockchain, there's a complete record of that transaction. Of, but, you know, of course, the problem is that when crypto was designed was that the nodes, the endpoints of that of that that chain are anonymous. And so that's where you hide. Well, in theory. In theory. The, yes, depending on if you own 
perhaps more than 51% of the processing in any one node. Then, oh, yeah, then you own everything. Uh, <laughs> yes, then you own everything. Uh, dear, this, that goes outside the scope. It will be interesting to see um, what happens in New South Wales after the, the state election on uh, March the 25th, I believe, 2023. Um, and the federal government has let, the new federal government has yet to play its hand, really, in, in terms of what it might do uh, specifically. But it's certainly got a horrible reputation so far. It has. I mean, it's been, it's been an interesting few years where we're, we're, we've allowed governments to do things that would have been inconceivable. I mean, we, they, they locked us in our own homes. They made oh, us going down that path. All right. They, they they made us, you know, abide by, you know, very stringent rules. We got fined if we sat on the park bench. Um, it's Most been, of those have been overturned. Yeah, they were just silly. And, and yeah. magistrates, while you may not agree with every decision, they're not yeah. completely crazy. And with that, yeah, not really what the point of the exercise was. But it's interesting. It does show um, how much of our society is built around consent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and built a, built around convention and how that can change overnight. Convention, it, yes, we've already seen that uh, in the America back in the four years from 2016 when it became clear that, oh, yes, there are no rules to stop this man actually doing what he just did. It's just that we normally didn't do that. Yes, there's, there's a lot of unwritten convention. <laughs> <laughs> and we're seeing that playing out in... in uh, the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland and around other countries yes. as well yes, as enjoy we your, speak. Uh, enjoy, we'll enjoy our public holiday on <laughs> the 22nd. <laughs> Which brings us, <laughs> talking about the British Royal Army, uh, to kill the robots, obviously. Um, yeah, that is something that has <laughs> keep me awake at night. It does something I've become, in many respects, an accidental activist. I never sort of sat down and thought, I need to become very political and very active in this space, but I've somehow found myself... You have whenever artificial intelligence in weapon systems is spoken about and a news story happens, your name is often attached, not just because it's, oh, who do we get to talk about it today, but because you you have been out there beforehand actually waving the banner for for this being a bad thing. Yes, it has now got me banned for Russia for life. <laughs> so... <laughs> That's, that's not that hard a thing to do, to be honest. But yes. It isn't. No, I wear it with pride, though. I wear it with pride. I, <laughs> okay. I, 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 I was somewhat surprised in the morning I woke up and discovered that I was you know, on the headline as being one of the prominent, inverted commas, Australians who was being banned by Putin. But um, as far as I can understand, it is because I was very outspoken in part about AI's, the use of um, AI in uh, weapon systems by the Russian military. Well... Let's 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 repeat the argument again here, and I don't think anyone in Russia listens to this. But you know, um, <laughs> well, what, what are they going to do? They going to ban me? Oh, they've already banned me. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, what's the argument? What's what's the problem here? The the problem is that we're handing over these decisions, the decisions as to who lives and who dies, to machines. And as, as we said earlier, um, you know, machines are not moral beings, and that's going to be a, I think, a, a step change in the way we fight war. It's going to be a terrible transformation. I mean, all technologies we we often think about transforming and using in warfare, and this is one that would really industrialize warfare. I mean, the 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 wonderful thing about computers is if you can get them to do something once, you can get them to do it a thousand or ten thousand or a million times. So if you can get a drone to kill one person, you can get a a thousand drones to kill a thousand people, and you've killed a million people. Uh, this is this is a question. Yeah, haven't we had machines that? killed people without human intervention for more than a century. The landmine has a, it's a machine, it makes a decision. Uh, the German jumping mine of World War II, is this now the second person who's trodden on me? So we're further down into the group of people. Very simple decision. Uh, a homing torpedo or a, a guided missile decides where it will go boom and whoever's just there. Surely, Surely is a great word, isn't it? That if we make it the decision making smarter somehow, that it will be better than just a dumb. I will now go boom. Yeah, this this is an you know attractive argument that people put forward. So I think it it is, however, fatally flawed. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I should point out first of all that some of those things that you've talked about are actually banned right anti-personal minds sorry yes are banned right yes. we did decide that they they should be banned although because they can't tell the difference between a soldier and a civilian yes although 
um, not every country, and Russia is one of those countries, have signed the treaty. Banned again. Banned again. Um, but, but, but yes, we have had weapons that have had a certain amount of autonomy. Mm. Um, and so, uh, and some of those systems, actually, I will admit, are actually useful. So, for example, the, the Phalanx anti-missile system that sits yes. on Royal Australian uh, naval ships uh, and, and ships of, of other uh, navies. Um, it protects the, the airspace above a ship for incoming hypersonic missiles. And because an incoming hypersonic missile appears over the horizon and hits you in, in you know, fractions of a second, because it's traveling at hypersonic speed, it's a fully autonomous system. It recognizes the, the radar, radar signal of a hypersonic missile and, and sends out, you know, fires the Gatling gun to, to try and bring it down. Um, without any human intervention. And even uh, Samsung make quite nice little uh, sentry guard robots for the yes, Korean the, border. The, the nice which... people who build you uh, <laughs> smartphones also build a fully autonomous sentry robot, which... Um, uh, shoots anything that moves, basically. Shoots that anything that moves with deadly accuracy from a kilometre away. Yes. Um, and is permanently stationed on the DMZ, the demilitarised zone between North and South Korea. Um not that you would have any reason to step on the DMZ because that is also the most heavily mined uh, yes. part of the world. So if the mines don't kill you, this thing will. Uh, and I will. suppose, yes, in that specific instance, the rules of the game are very clear. This yes. is a border which you cannot cross. Yes. And you know, there's no real reason, no good reason to be there. I mean, of course, maybe you're a North Korean trying to flee sanctuary, but that's or a not... a cow wandering across. Yes, that's not a very safe place, unfortunately, to be, but... Um, so yes, they're very constrained. But you know what we're looking at is the, the weapons that are making uh, much more um, subtle decisions. They're making decisions based upon um, we've, we're seeing drones that are that are carrying face recognition software that are trying to recognise people's faces and targeting people based upon their face. Um, and that's software that's not particularly accurate. And mm -hmm. um, it's uh, taking us to, a, to a, a, a very dangerous world where it's people being targeted. It's not military machinery as we have it in the past. It's not um, a yes. tank, the profile, the ra radar profile or the silhouette of a tank that you're, uh, you're, you're targeting. It's an individual and it may be a particular individual. And these are, these are weapons that are going to be used uh, very shortly, for example, to carry out assassination. I mean, there's actually already been an assassination attempt on the president of Venezuela using a drone. I mean, it's only a matter of time before one of these weapons succeeds uh, in its aim. So um, political leaders should be pretty worried because these will be very effective weapons of changing institutions. We've already had for some time um, uh, the president of the United States, uh, a foot person, uh, takes away any glasses they've been drinking from so they can't take DNA traces yes, from because, it. Yes, because otherwise you'll bio-target the president's DNA. <sighs> These are all unhappy notes, Toby. We, we do need to wrap up. Do we have happy notes to end on here? Yes. I mean, ultimately, I, I have a lot of hope that there are risks of these technologies like there are risks of any technologies but ultimately these are technologies that will let us live like kings and queens that um, the robots will take the sweat that we will be able to sit back and enjoy the uh, finer things in life we'll sit there sipping our cocktails while while the robots are sweating for us that we do have that future to go back to those science fiction novels of my youth where where robots were our servants and were um, doing all the tough, the dirty, the dangerous, the difficult things for us. And we were sitting back and enjoying the finer things in life. Hmm. I wonder what will happen to all the people who are currently doing those things for us. Yes, that is an interesting <laughs> and an important yes. conversation. But, I mean, there's no shortage of work. There's shortage of paid work. There's lots mm. of stuff that we do that we don't pay for, that we should be paying for. I mean, looking after the young, looking after the elderly, looking after people with disabilities, um, all the community work we do, we, we could afford to pay for all of that. And then if we still, if we if we have run out of all that stuff, well, then we could sit around and, and we could paint and write novels and listen to music or, or, or do whatever amuses us. Off to the off-world colonies. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> 
Toby Walsh, Professor Toby Walsh, thank you very much. Stay li- stay listening, dear listener. I'll, I'll do all the plugs for the books and what's happening and the institute that's just opened today as we record this. Toby Walsh, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a great pleasure. Right then. The thing about a couple of old blokes sitting down and talking about stuff they know is that, of course, they get stuff wrong. And the great thing about this podcast, dear listener, is that I fact-check that stuff. That's why I have links on the webpage, and that's why I'm saying the things I say to you now. Okay, the World War II German landmine that could count to two, the S-mine, it didn't count to two. It would just, like when, when, a, when someone trod on it, it would wait for four seconds before jumping up into the air and exploding and uh, throwing shrapnel into everyone nearby. So it kind of did do the job of waiting until maybe more people were closer to it, but it did not count to two. Probably could have, but I'm sure one landmine did. Anyway, that's the German S-mine. Uh, my comment about uh, the President of the United States having his glassware taken away so that uh, his DNA could not be recorded, that is apparently true. There was an article uh, 10 years ago in 2012 in The Atlantic magazine uh, which did talk about how uh, the US government was collecting the DNA of other world leaders and was uh, reportedly protecting uh, the DNA of Barack Obama because in the future there might be some way to make personalised bioweapons that could only take down someone based on their specific DNA or that of their identical twin or their mother or something like that. Interesting stuff. Uh, Yes, in 2014, the people who created the blue LED received uh, a Nobel Prize in physics. Uh, That was uh, Isamu Akasaki, Hiroshi Amano and Shuji Nakamura uh, because they developed that. But there's more to the story. Apparently, there is a dispute. That was the 2014 Nobel Prize. We've had blue LEDs a bit longer than that. But apparently, according to Benjamin Gross, who uh, is at the Chemical Heritage Foundation in Philadelphia. Sorry, I just read that paragraph for the very first time and I'm thinking the Chemical Heritage Foundation sounds a bit, yeah, kind of recreational drugsy. Uh, he says, sure, these these guys deserve their Nobel Prize, but in fact... An LED that glowed blue had already been invented back in the 1970s, I think it was, at RCA in the United States by someone named Herbert Paul Maruska. Anyway, blue LEDs, very clever. It's what allowed us to have white lead lighting because you need the red, the blue, the green, right? And we've had red and green LEDs for years. We needed the blue to make white Lead lights, huge thing. Yes, uh, Samsung makes Bora Guard robots, the SGR A1, it's called. I've linked to it, of course. It does have surveillance tracking, firing, automated, but it also has voice recognition, presumably so people can tell it the password and not get shot. Okay, I think that's all. The corrections for now, thank you again uh, to Professor Toby Walsh. He is the new chief scientist of the New South Wales, Uni of New South Wales Artificial Intelligence Institute. If you want to know more about that, it's just unsw.ai. How cool is that? Um, and uh, they've got an interesting job ahead of uh, ahead of him. This was launched uh, earlier in the week as I record this. And Stella Solar, she's the director of the National Artificial Intelligence Centre. She says that Australia is fifth in the world for developing AI like science, but only 11th in the world in capitalising on that knowledge. She also says we have this world-leading ability, but 
our general public understanding of AI and what it can do uh, is not up at that level. So that'll be an interesting task for NS, uh, UNSW.AI to do. Toby Walsh, better plug the books. He has three books for the general public on AI. The first one uh, is It's Alive! Artificial Intelligence from the Logic Piano to Killer Robots. Uh, the second one we mentioned before, 2062, The World That AI Made, Looking Ahead. Uh, a few years, and the most recent, Machines Behaving Badly, The Morality of AI. All of those are published by Black Ink in Australia, in Melbourne. Uh, and they're available in 10 other languages, other uh, well, nine other languages, apart from English, Chinese, German, Korean, Polish, Romanian, Russian, Taiwanese, Turkish, and Vietnamese. Taiwanese is a language? I suspect you mean traditional Chinese. But there you go. Now to finish, I wanted to save this uh, treat for you until the very end, uh, nearly the very end. This is the penultimate thing I'm going to mention. The chess world is agog this month. Agog, I tell you. There are allegations of cheating that a chess player by the name of Hans Niemann has been cheating at the Sankfield Cup chess tournament because he's been using wireless anal beads, a kind of sex toy, that vibrate him the correct moves. <laughs> yeah, that's a thing. Look it up. I've linked to a news story. Don't know if it's true. That's the allegation going around. And finally, finally, I just wanted to say, of course we mentioned 1984 and government and computers controlling everything and, and uh, Toby's feeling that it would be more incompetence than malice uh, that shaped the future. That is the theme of Terry Gilliam's film Brazil from 1985. So while George Orwell's 1984 uh, uh, book, which was released in 1940-something, 48, I think, Look it up for yourself, uh, where all of this government surveillance technology is is malevolent. In Terry Gilliam's Brazil, it's, it's just incompetence. Everything is incompetence. And as we say, any sufficiently advanced incompetence is indistinguishable from malice. Well, that's all the edict for now. Uh, to support the podcast, please go to the 9pmedict.com slash tip. You'll find links to everything, the credits and so on. I haven't totally locked in the next special guest episode, but in the coming week I will do a solo episode, probably about the Queen. Until then, I'm still Garyan. Wash your hands. The 9pm Edict is a Skank Media production. Sorry.